quick note just before the uh, interview begins. About three quarters of the way through the chat, a fire engine went past my window and um, the audio goes maybe a tiny bit crackly just for a few minutes around that time. I'm not sure exactly why, but I just want to apologise in advance. But apart from that, it's a good one. So I hope you really enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Johan Hari. What really causes addiction? Everything from cocaine to smartphones and how can we overcome it? Johan Hari is a British journalist who has seen our current methods fail firsthand as he has watched loved ones struggle to manage their addictions. He started to wonder why we treat addicts the way we do and if there might be a better way. Johan has spent the last five years researching the war on drugs and questioning the ways in which we treat addiction. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book on this topic, Chasing the Scream, and his TED Talk entitled Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong is one of the top-viewed TED Talks of all time. Johan, thanks so much for being here. Oh, hi, Duncan. It's great to be with you. This topic of the war on drugs, I know that when I think the war on drugs, and I'm sure many other people think this, I kind of think it all started with President Nixon, but... In fact, it actually goes back to a man named Harry Anslinger, right? This is the thing, and one of the things that surprised me when I was doing the research. You know, if you'd said to me, uh, you know, when I started doing the research, why were drugs banned 100 years ago, right? Because it was at the time it was 100 years since, since the first ban. I would have thought, well, it'd probably be for the reasons that if you stopped a random person in the street in Amsterdam, where you are, or London, where I am at the moment, uh, the reasons they would give, right? You'd say, well, we don't want kids to use drugs. We don't want people to become addicted. What was so fascinating in the research, uh, I spent a lot, of, did a lot of, obviously most of the book is about traveling in different parts of the world and the stuff I learned there, but I did a lot of archival research for the first part. That stuff barely came up, right? I didn't even talk about it. You read the, the official uh, debate, it barely came up. I opened the book with a story that I think is about why the war on drugs really began. And it, to some people, I think it seems like a weird place to begin the story, right? It's this moment. 1939, in midtown Manhattan, Billie Holiday walked onto a stage and for the first time she sang a song. It's a song called Strange Fruit that I'm sure most people listening to this will know. It's a song against lynching. It's this idea that in the South there's the strange fruit hanging from the trees and the the strange fruit is the the bodies of murdered African-American men. And she sings this song and, and, and it was, you've got to understand how shocking this was. Like her goddaughter, Lorraine, said to me, you've got to understand how shocking this was, right? Billie Holiday wasn't even allowed to walk through the front door of that hotel because she was an African-American. They made her go through the service elevator. And she stands in front of a white audience and she sings this song. Someone later calls it the uh, musical starting gun for the civil rights movement, right? And at, at this time when there were very few political songs of any kind. And that night, Billie Holiday gets a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. It was run by this man, Harry Anslinger. And it basically says, stop singing this song. And uh, and so that's where the, the book by Chasing the Scream opens. And uh, yeah, and some people would find that strange because you think, well, hang on, what's, what's this got to do with the war on drugs, right? What's going on there? You've got to tell who this man is and who Billie Holiday was. So Harry Anslinger was a government bureaucrat and he took over the Department of Alcohol Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. It's been a complete disaster obviously and the war on alcohol has been totally lost so he takes over this big government bureaucracy and he wants to keep it going but you know there is no war soon very soon there's not going to be a war on alcohol and he invents effectively the modern war on drugs he's the first person to ever use the phrase war on drugs to keep this department going to keep his men employed now he did sincerely 
believe in it. And he really builds the, the, the war on drugs around two really intense hatreds that he had. One was an intense hatred of people with addiction problems based on some bad experiences he's had as a kid. And one was a super intense hatred of African-Americans and Latinos and Chinese-Americans. I mean, he was regarded as a crazy racist in the 1920s, which is some idea. And he used the N-word so often in his own official memos that even his own senator said he should have to stand down, and he, and he, and he didn't. And to him, Billie Holiday was like a symbol of everything that was going wrong, right? She's an African-American woman resisting white supremacy. Jazz to him was like the worst kind of, as he would have put it, mongrelization. It's bringing together the races. And 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 she was a heroin addict. She, she, as a kid, she had been raped. Uh, initially, she was raped when she was 10. Then she was uh, forcibly raped by many, many men for money in a, in a, in a brothel in um, on what's now Roosevelt Island in New York City. And... Um, and she was trying to stun her grief and her pain and her distress with, with heroin and alcohol. And Harry Anslinger, when, when Harry Anslinger sends this memo, well, gets his men to tell her, stop singing this song. She effectively, because Billie Holiday was an incredible person, said, fuck you, I'm an American citizen, I'm going to sing my song. And that was when he really resolved to destroy her. And I think the story of how Harry Anslinger destroys Billie Holiday and, and thinking about fulfilling life, Billie Holiday's extraordinary resistance to that is a story that tells us what the war on drugs was about all along. It's about, so it's partly about race, it's partly about the desire to destroy addicts, but I think in a deeper sense, if you think about Harry Anslinger as a spiritual being, it was so fascinating, I spent so much time in his archives. Harry Anslinger is this terrified man. He's so frightened of the world and his way of trying to regain control over his fear and his anxieties to try to destroy and suppress people around him. And I think that that, that kind of symbolization, that, that belief that this is, I don't normally put it like this in interviews, but I think since you're talking about it in your, your shows about, you know, fulfilling life and spirituality, I think one thing a lot of us are tempted to do, and I feel that temptation is to turn your fears and anxieties into like, external objects in the world and to imagine that if you can destroy those external objects you'll be safe again and you see that so clearly playing out in Harry Anslinger's story and I can talk about how Billie Holiday resisted that in the most incredible way and I think really tells us something about how to have a fulfilling life but yeah the that, that's the kind of setup of it. It's, it's fascinating and it's I mean there were just I was I was just so many interesting studies and um, so many interesting things that you um, you reference through the book and through some of your um, your interviews and talks I've 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 read. Like, obviously, um, Portugal is almost like not the poster child, but like I've, I've I've been following you know what they've been doing with their decriminalization for a while. But one thing I, I'd never heard of was in the eighties and the nineties, the Swiss had a serious drug epidemic. And first, I think you said they tried to harsh crackdowns on the dealers and the problem only got worse second they tried herding addicted people into a park and then letting them use street drugs there which then only produced like this madness and this chaos what 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 happened next i think it's really interesting because uh, one of the reasons i want to look at this is because sometimes when you talk about what's gone wrong with the catastrophe of the war on drugs and this was very important to me because as you mentioned we had addiction in in in, in my family and some people i love very much Sometimes people say, well, what would the alternative be? And very often that's discussed as if it's like an abstract question, right? As if we're at a philosophy seminar and we're talking, oh, well, what would it mean? How would we do it? And I thought, 
fuck that. There are places that have actually done it. I'm going to go to those places. So obviously I went to the places that were, you know, most affected by the drug war. I went out with a group of women uh, made to go out on a chain gang in Arizona wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict and made to dig graves while members of the public mock them. I went to Vietnam where uh, people with addiction problems are put into gulags, forced labor camps. Um, I went to northern Mexico and interviewed, you know, uh, Hitman for the Deadliest Mexican Drug Cartel, these killing fields. And I wanted to go to places that had done the exact opposite, right? And so, I, as you say, I went to Switzerland, Portugal, and Uruguay. And um, the Swiss experiment to me was so interesting. Um, so Ruth Dreyfus, who was the president of Switzerland, at the height, well, the health minister, then the president at the height of the crisis, first female president, first Jewish president, one of the best people I've ever met, just an extraordinary human being. Ruth explained to Swiss people, she looked at all the evidence and she explained to Swiss people, look, in the middle of this terrible heroin crisis, when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is like anarchy and chaos, right? What we have now is anarchy and chaos. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease and chaos. What would happen if we did this differently? So uh, Ruth proposed legalizing heroin, which when you when you first hear it, you think, oh, that's, that doesn't sound like a good idea, right? What, what? And it's important to understand legalization means different things for different drugs. In the same way that, you know, in the country we're from, Britain, if it's legal to own a dog, a monkey and a lion, but the rules are different, right? A dog, we can just go into a shop and buy it. A monkey, I'm pretty sure you need like a license and like a lion, I'm sure they come in like inspect your house and make sure you're not a mad person. In the same way, no one is proposing legalizing heroin like alcohol, right? Well, some people are, but a tiny, very, virtually nobody, right? Um, no one thinks there should be a heroin aisle in Boots or CVS, right? That's not, the, that's not what we're proposing. The way it works is, and I went to see it in practice, it was set up by Ruth. They set up these heroin clinics. If you've got a heroin problem, you're assigned to a heroin clinic. You go there. I went to the one in, in Geneva, which actually Ruth lives just around the corner from now. Um, you, you go in, um, you, you, you're given your heroin there. You have to use it there. You can't take it out with you. Uh, you go at seven o'clock in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things very early. You're given <laughs> pure heroin, not the adulterated stuff you get from drug dealers. And then you leave and you go to your job because you're given a huge amount of support to turn your life around, to get housing, to get work, to deal with the psychological problems that are, that, that, that you might have. And um, the thing that most struck me in the Swiss clinic, I mean, there are loads of really important things about the Swiss clinic. Uh, crime massively fell. Uh, there have been zero overdose deaths on legal heroin in Switzerland in the more than 10 years have done that. That's zero. That's nobody. That's nothing. Not a single person. But a massive fall in HIV transmission, or a huge fall in street crime. It's why Swiss people voted by 70% to keep heroin legal in a referendum. In Switzerland, my dad's from Switzerland. My grandmother got the vote in 1973. This is not San Francisco, right? And yet super conservative Swiss people voted to keep it legal once they'd seen the results. But to me, the most interesting thing was that all that is super important, obviously. To me, the most interesting thing, and I think, think it's most relevant to the subjects of your podcast, is a different thing. So you can stay on that program as long as you want, and they will always give you the dose you want. They won't give you one that will actually kill you, but any other dose they'll give you, right? And there is never any pressure to cut back or to stop. And yet, almost everyone does cut back and stop, right? Or go down to other drugs methadone for example and i asked i remember rita mangi who's the wonderful she's the psychiatrist in charge of the clinic in geneva or was then i think she's now 
I remember saying to Rita, why is that? Because we're told, you know, the drugs hijack you, they take you over, you'll need more and more. And, And Rita said to me, well, because their lives get better. And as your life gets better, you don't want to be anesthetized so much. And those aren't her exact words. Exact words are on the website for the book. Um, but that's, I pre, I'm saying it's memory, but I'm pretty sure much the gist of what she said. And that, I think, really opens up uh, or, or leads us to think about what I think is one of the most important things I learned, which is how much we've misunderstood what addiction is and what's causing it. You know, um, I had under, misunderstood this. If you had asked me at the start of my research, you know, what causes uh I'm not to stick with the heroin, the heroin in Switzerland, for example, but this is true of all addiction. What, what causes heroin addiction, for example? You know, I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. I would have said, well, obviously heroin addiction is caused by heroin, right? That's <laughs> the clues in the name, right? Um, we, we've been told this story about addiction for 100 years that's totally become how we think about the world. We think that if, if you grab the next 20 people on the streets of Amsterdam outside your apartment and you injected them all with heroin for a month, you know, like some kind of saw villain in the saw films, you, you, you know, they would all be heroin addicts, right? Because there are chemical hooks in heroin, that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. And that's what addiction is. And there, there there's a lot of evidence that that chemical hooks theory uh, is only telling a very, very small part of the picture. One of the ways I first realized that is when it, or first questioned it, is when it was explained to me here in Britain, if I step out of this interview now and get hit by a truck, right, and I break my hip, God forbid, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given a lot of, um, it's very likely they'll give me a lot of a drug called diamorphine for the pain. Diamorphine is heroin. It's the exact thing they give in that clinic in Switzerland. It's heroin. It's much better heroin than I could ever score off a dealer in the state around the corner from here, right? It's, 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 it's medically pure. If what we think about addiction is right, this has been given in Britain in hospitals frequently, right? Anyone who's got a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother has taken a lot of heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, what should be happening to all these people in hospitals in Britain? Significant numbers of them should be becoming addicted. This has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens. And when I learned that, I was really puzzled by it. And I only really began to understand it when I went to a city that I know you know well, Vancouver. I spent a lot of time on the downtown inside, which I know you know is a place with a lot of um, high concentration of people with addiction problems. And I got to know an incredible, uh, wonderful man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology there, who did this experiment that I think helps us to has helped to transform across the world how we think about these questions. So Bruce explained to me, theory of addiction we've got about chemical hooks is caused by chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You take a rat, you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks, right? So there you go. That's our story. But in the 70s, Bruce came along and looked at these experiments and said, well, hang on a minute. You put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except to use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of cheese. They've got loads of colored balls. They can have loads of sex, anything rats like, right? And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course, they try both. They don't know what's in them. This is the really important thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. 
They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% overdose when their lives are shit, they're isolated, they don't have the things that give life meaning, to none when they have good and the things that make life meaningful. And I think this is a lot of lessons for humans. There's been lots of human experiments um, on this principle. And I guess the way I've tried to distill it is to say the opposite of addiction is, is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is, is connection. Professor Cohen in the Nevins, who said that actually maybe we shouldn't even call it addiction at all. We should call it bonding. And is that, yeah. is that, is that following up from that idea? Yeah, Peter Cohen, he, you should interview him. He's, he's in Amsterdam where you are now. And Peter, Peter Cohen's interesting. I don't agree with everything he says, but I think he's a very insightful guy. And, and yeah, he says that, you know, we, we, should call it, we, should, we should call it bonding because when, you know, when we're happy and healthy, we will bond and connect with the people around us and with meaning and purpose. But if you can't do that because you're isolated or you're traumatized or you're beaten down by life or your culture just teaches you the wrong values and doesn't teach you how to connect, you know, you're going to bond and connect with something, right? Human beings need to bond. So you will bond and connect with something that will give your life meaning. Now, that might be vodka, that might be gambling, that might be porn, that might be cocaine. Shopping, we, smartphones, like literally dot, 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 fill, fill in the blanks. Exactly. And the rise of these behavioral addictions, what are called behavioral addictions, right? My friend Stanton Peel was the first guy to really identify this. He's a, he's a really important figure, Stanton. Again, I don't agree with everything Stanton says, but, he, but he, he's a really important figure, I think. He was the first person to identify in his book, Love and Addiction, in the, uh, 1971, I think. He was the first person to identify that you could become addicted to something other than a drug, because at that time, people thought, well, that makes no sense, right? How can you become addicted to sex, right? Because sex isn't a drug. How can you become addicted to gambling? You don't snort a roulette wheel. But because because they thought what addiction was was a response to chemical hooks that makes no sense but now even if you think okay i'll give you a lowbrow reference there was a I, i've got to go and check this out because it's from my memory but i remember um an episode of cheers uh the best sitcom ever where ted danson the ted, ted danson character uh sam sam malone uh someone suggests to him that he's a sex addict right and the response is just uproarious laughter from the audience and the episode follows him he goes to like a sex and love addicts anonymous meeting and like just the audience is just pissing themselves at the idea of sex addiction right that's that's the the, the joke in the episode is the idea that there could be such a thing now you would never get a sitcom doing that now right like two broke girls is not going to do i mean you might get an episode themed around sex addiction but it would not take the very idea of sex addiction as a joke, right? Because our views of what addiction is have, have uh, our view of what addiction is has massively evolved. And we now, and once you understand the behavioral addictions, that tells something, if you can have all of the addiction and no chemical hook, that tells us about how we've overrated the role of chemical hooks in addiction. That is not to say that there's no role played by chemical, chemical hooks there is and i can talk about that if you like but that we've massively overrated it overestimated mm. the, the component that it that it makes up and maybe underestimated the connection between uh the link between addiction and then the trauma like I, I, it was such a wonderful example um which is just the water buffalo in vietnam never ate opium plants there for centuries and centuries and centuries and yet during like the bombing during the Vietnam Viet, uh, during the Vietnam War, they would eat these opium plants obsessively, and then once the trauma ended, then that dropped down and they stopped eating them again. I mean, that's 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 quite a like a bizarre, but I mean, it's such an yeah interesting example and illustration of that. 
Yeah, that was documented by an amazing guy who I interviewed. He's a slightly, he's a fascinating person, Ronald K. Siegel, his name is. He was an advisor to three American presidents in the World Health Organization. He's this impeccably um, uh, credentialed and, and brilliant uh, scientist. He's in LA. Um, but he also decided to, he had this sideline where for like 40 years he documented how animals use drugs. Uh, <laughs> I'm not forgetting he told me, I don't know if it's in the book in the end. Tell me one time he was, he wanted to figure out if moon, mongooses like cannabis. So he he spent he went to Hawaii and he was staking out like a, a cannabis field for ages with which had some mongooses like nearby to figure out if they if they like them and and basically the people who owned the cannabis field, the, the dealers, the smugglers, um, they caught him and they were like, What are you doing? Because they were convinced he was from the DEA or the, the police. And he's like, Oh, don't worry, I'm just a scientist investigating whether mongooses like cannabis. And they're like, that is the worst fucking cover story we have ever heard. And they took him hostage for like three days or something. Uh, and then they figured out, they were, oh, you are a dispatch, an insane person who wants to figure out whether mongoose is like, anyways, why? And he also spent like a year investigating whether when grasshoppers eat cannabis, do they jump higher? And he was like, I was like, he spent a year investigating that in Albania. And I was like, so do they? And he's like, no. <laughs> that was not a well-spent year of your life. <laughs> And that was 12 months, yes. <laughs> but like, you realise you have a limited amount of time as a human being. But, but Ronald has done this really, really interesting interesting research on this. And um, one of the things Ronald says, and this is an important thing to distinguish between in the addiction debate. So 90% of all drug use, even the, the um, UN Office of Drug Control, who are the main drug war body in the world, their slogan is, a drug-free world, we can do it, which is... It's astonishing to me that there can be a government, uh, you know, something funded by all our governments that can have a slogan that is as realistic as the most ludicrous communist Soviet Union, you know, will get rid of greed or something. Um, but anyway, the, the, even the UN Office of Drug Control, they admit 90 percent of all currently illegal drug use in the world is what they call non-problematic. It doesn't damage your health. It doesn't um, doesn't cause addiction. It, 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 you know, it's, it's non-problematic. And what, what's interesting, Professor Carl Hart at Columbia University has done really interesting research on this. Um, that's true of all drugs. The ratio, so if you go to a bar tonight in Amsterdam, or I go to the pub around the corner from me, um, we all know almost everyone in that pub that night will be drinking because, you know, it makes their life better. You know, they want to chat someone up. They want to chill out, whatever. And there will be a minority in that pub who do have an, addiction, an alcohol addiction problem who need our love and support to turn their lives around. That ratio seems to be true of all drugs. It's true of crack. It's true of meth. 90%, and this really shocks me, but, you know, the evidence is really robust. 90% of people who use any drug don't become addicted. You've got to ask what's going on with the 10% who do. Yeah. And it's not the drug. It's the drug plus something else and it's the drug plus profound disconnection a profound sense of pain that they're trying to anesthetize um and i think that is the the, the core thing to understand i've been thinking about that just before we were speaking i was thinking back over the, um in the run-up to the 2016 election i was in um Ohio, which was obviously one of the key swing states. I was in Cleveland with some people I'm writing about for a different, a completely different, something about a different subject. And I think about this moment that to me will just, I was thinking about it in relation to Le Pen, which is why we're speaking the day after 
Macron won, but Le Pen won, uh, you know, a really big amount of the vote for someone with such depraved and extreme politics. She got, I think, 34% of the vote. So, ten, you know, more than 10 million people. Um, I was thinking about this woman that we met. We were canvassing on this street in in Cleveland. And um, I don't know if you've been to Cleveland. It's It's like Detroit without the poetry of the ruins, right? It's this former... This just this has been destroyed, you know. And we're on the street in West Cleveland where we're walking down it and knocking on doors, and there was um, about a third of the houses had been knocked down, a third had been abandoned, and a third still had people living in them. And there was this door we knocked on. There was a woman who I found out was the same age as me. From looking at her, I would have guessed she was fifty-five. Right? She had this really tough life. We got talking. She was very angry, um, rightly. Um, she was raging at us. Um, and then she made this verbal slip that's really stayed with me. She meant to say, she talked about what the area used to be like. And she meant to say when I was young, but what she actually said is when I was alive. And it really took me aback, you know, and if I think about the places I've been where they have the biggest addiction crises, and of course addiction happens everywhere, um, and it can happen in any social group because anyone can become in pain and disconnected, but obviously it's concentrated most in the places where pain is highest, right? And I think about, or for example, in um, I was in a place called um, Monadnock, which is recently, which is um, in rural New Hampshire. Uh, or yeah, you know, I was just in um, Sao Paulo in Brazil, in one of the areas with the highest concentration of addiction in South America, a place a part of Sao Paulo they call Cracolandia. And if you go to those places, you see the rationality of addictive behaviour, right? They're anesthetising themselves as best they can. If we want to understand why so many people in our culture are turning to anaesthetics. We need to understand why they're in so much pain. And to fetishize the anesthetic is to misunderstand. It would be like thinking the correct way to deal with obsessive compulsive disorder is to wage war on light switches and on taps. You know, it's mistaking the object of the problem for the symptom. It's mistaking the symptom of the problem for the cause of the problem. And so we need to think about why there is such deep pain. And Bruce Alexander, this is very relevant to your podcast, Bruce Alexander, who did the Rat Park experiment, said to me, we talk all the time in addiction about individual recovery. That has real value. We should talk about that. But we need to talk much more about social recovery. Something has gone wrong with us, not just as individuals, but as a group. And and we need to think much more deeply about that. It's not just that spontaneously loads of people in rural New Hampshire and in Cleveland all went wrong at the same time, right? That's not what's happening here. There's a, a there's, there's a, uh, what are their names? I can't remember, but there's um, some brilliant American academics who've, who've referred to the, the opiate crisis at the moment in the United States as the deaths as despair deaths, which I think is a very, it's, it's places where the, where uh, people are dying of addiction-related overdoses, are also the places where the suicide rate has massively gone up, where depression has massively gone up. There's a reason for that, right? There's a strong connection between them. And um, I think that's really important to think about. In the 18th century, uh, in London, there was this this thing um, this thing happened called the gin craze. Basically, huge numbers of people were driven out of the countryside into these really disgusting urban slums. It's actually very similar to the story I was just seeing in Brazil, right? 
driven out of the countryside into these disgusting urban slums in Manchester, London, other places. And there was a huge outbreak of alcoholism, mass alcoholism, right? And it was called the gin craze because huge numbers of people drank gin. Some people might know the famous famous painting by Hogarth of like a woman, it's like, like a kind of symbol of that time. It's a, a woman is downing a bottle of uh, gin while her baby like falls off the steps and presumably dies, right? And it seems that we've got fairly good evidence this did actually happen, right? There really was a gin. It's not like bullshit propaganda. There really was a gin craze, right? And at the time, what people said is, ah, look at this evil drug gin. Look at what it does to people, right? If only we could get rid of gin, um, we'd get rid of this problem. Now, when we look back, we see, right, it can't be gin because I live a one minute walk from a shop where they sell gin, right? I could literally have a bottle of gin in two minutes, right? I'm not doing it. You can have a bottle of gin with you now. You're not doing it. Gin didn't go away. What changed was the social distress, right? These people had lost everything that gave life meaning. They had been brutally driven out of their, their, their whole way of life was ruptured and they were put into this situation that was horrendous, right? And, and which no one should have had to endure. And they were really distressed and quite understandably, they turned to the only thing that made them feel less distressed. Now, I don't think gin is the solution, obviously, in the same way I don't think heroin is the solution. I don't think, you know, I don't think I don't think addictive behavior is a good thing. Um, I do think it's an understandable thing. And if we want to change it, we have to change the reasons why people are in such pain, not yeah. get rid of the object of it. Because if you get rid of the object of it, but you don't deal with the pain, what you get is you they stop being addicted and they just become suicidally depressed. Well, you may think that's progress. And maybe there's a debate about whether it is, but that's a false choice, right? The real solution is to deal with the, the problems. I, I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with it, but just for anyone who isn't aware, could you maybe just briefly just share uh, some of the some of the results that have happened in the last 15, I believe, years in Portugal since they decriminalised? Um, yeah, so I think there's a, there's a difference. They didn't haven't legalised drugs, but they've decriminalised it. Um, could you maybe share what happened there? So what Portugal did, I, this I found this incredible incredibly moving um when i went there to be honest i actually put off going to portugal for a while because i'd spent about two years researching like the problem right and part of me thought oh jesus what will happen if i go to portugal and switzerland Uruguay, and it hasn't worked this will be like the most depressing book ever but actually what happened in portugal was extraordinary so Portugal had the biggest drug problem in Europe in the year 2000. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And every year they tried the American way more, they arrested more people, they imprisoned more people, they shamed more people, and every year the problem got worse. And then one day, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and basically said, well, they decided to do something super radical, something no one had done since the start of the war on drugs. They said, should we like ask some scientists to look at the facts, right? So they set up this panel led by an amazing man I got to know called Dr. Juan Gulao. Uh, it's a panel of doctors, judges, scientists, and they said, and social workers, and they said, you guys go away, figure out what would, look at all the evidence, figure out what would genuinely solve this problem, and we've agreed in advance we'll do whatever you recommend. So it just took it out of politics. So the panel went away, led by, by Juan, they, they, they looked at all the evidence, including Rat Park and a lot of the things we've been talking about. And they came back and they said, decriminalise all drugs from cannabis to crack everything but and this is the crucial next step take all the money we currently spend on fucking people's lives up on arresting them imprisoning them 
shaming them and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And interestingly, it's not really what we think of as rehab in Britain and the United States. There's a little bit of like um, residential rehab. There's some psychological support that does have value. But the biggest stuff they did was the exact opposite of what we do. They set up a huge program of job creation for addicts. The, uh, they set up a huge program of microloans so addicts could set up small businesses that they believed in. If you used to be a mechanic, they'd go to a garage and they'd say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. If you really wanted to run a business about, you know, painting, house painting, they would help you set that up. The goal was to say to every addict in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. And the results in Portugal, I went there when it was 13 years since the decriminalisation, it's now 16 years, I think. Um, the best scientific study of this by the British Journal of Criminology found um, injecting drug use fell by 50%, 5-0%. There wasn't a fall anything like it anywhere else in Europe. Uh, massive fall in overdose deaths, massive fall in HIV transmission, massive fall in street crime. One of the ways you know it worked so well so I went I went to Portugal, I went to interview this guy called Juan Figuera, who led the opposition to the decriminalisation at the time. He was the top drug cop in Portugal. And he said what loads of people totally understandably say when they hear about this, which is surely if we decriminalise all drugs, it will be a disaster. We'll have a massive increase in drug use. We'll have massive increase in drug problems. And Juan said to me that the audio was on the chasing the screen dot com. Um, something like. Everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talks about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years, um, you know, making addicts' lives worse when he could have been making their lives better. And, um, yeah, it was a really... So I think we have a lot to learn from. At the moment, your our government, we're British, the, particularly the US government at the moment, the new and catastrophic US government is basically doubling down on failure. We're looking at the places that have failed and we're imitating them. What we could do is look at the places that have succeeded and imitate them instead. It's up to us and, and to anyone, you know, uh, listens to this, uh, who thinks, oh, this is a big thing, you know, this is something where we really can change the situation. The war on drugs is a hollow failure. Really often I'm asked when I do TV stuff, the TV producers will say, who should we get to argue against you? Because they can't find anyone who will publicly defend the war on drugs. The only people who defend it are a few, uh, uh, a majority of kind of very highly ideological people, some of whom I like as individuals, uh, or people who just make a living out of the drug war bureaucracy, right? Um, that's it. <laughs> no one else will defend it. Um, the vast majority of people in our societies believe the war on drugs has failed. Um, and this is something where we're talking about a global war. We haven't talked about what I think is one of the most important aspects of this, which is that prohibition causes an enormous amount of violence. So, you know, no one is afraid of the head of Smirnoff. Everyone was afraid of Al Capone. In the same way, I just recently, um, uh, about two months ago, I met Pablo Escobar's son, Sebastian, in, in Buenos Aires. Um, I had a really fascinating afternoon with, with him. And he said to me, the only thing my father feared was legalization, right? You will never find a drug dealer who's in favor of legalization. It's the one thing that bankrupts them. It's the one thing that drives them out of business. Um, he's an amazing guy, actually, Sebastian. I'd recommend uh, to people his, his book, um, 
a Pablo Escobar, my padre, a, a Pablo Escobar, my father. Um, uh, but, but so we haven't talked about that aspect of it. But, you know, this is a war that has killed hundreds of thousands of people at a conservative estimate, right? It, every day it goes on, more people with addiction problems die totally unnecessarily. Uh, more people get killed in this enormous violence that I reported on in Mexico and Colombia and El Salvador and, and Brazil. And for nothing, for nothing, we gain nothing from this war. Um, it, it makes every aspect of the of drug use and drug consumption more dangerous. Um, we can end this, right? And there are countries that have ended it and vastly more people survive and have good lives. It's not a magic bullet. These places aren't perfect. They still have problems, of course. But there's a really significant improvement, which is why if you look at Portugal, virtually nobody wants to go back in Portugal. Portugal has a pretty competitive political system. They have, I think, six main political parties. None of them want to go back. Even the far right party doesn't want to go back, right? The, 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 it tells you something about the success of these policies. There's a pattern with drug reform. Um, it's super controversial at first. People think it's crazy. Then they see it in practice and they're like, oh, that made things better. <laughs> you know, uh, you've seen this everywhere. I went Colorado, Washington, Uruguay, Portugal, Switzerland. Uh, everywhere I went where they'd, they'd gone beyond the drug war. Uh, actually, where you are in the, in the Netherlands. Um, so, yeah, I think at some point we have to start looking at, we have to realise that approaches based on love and compassion work. Yeah, and how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? Oh, they go to uh, www.chasingthescream. It's scream as in, ah, not <laughs> screen, not as in like the thing you're watching. It's, it's you. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm on uh, Twitter. It's J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I-101. And the book has a really active Facebook page. It's um, facebook.com slash chasing the screen. I had a weird experience recently. I did an interview and they said to me at the end, they asked me to like list my social media stuff and they said, what's your Snapchat? And I was like, <laughs> I'm 38 years old, right? The only 38 year olds on Snapchat are certainly paedophiles, right? Like, what, an, what a ridiculous thing to ask me. Anyway, uh, and then I got like hate mail from like Snapchat, 40 year olds on Snapchat. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, close your Snapchat account. This is not appropriate, right? Uh, but anyway, yeah, the, those are the best places to find more about the book, and uh, and they are on the book's website. They can people can take a quiz to see how much they know about these questions, and they can um, hear interviews with a lot of the people we've been talking about, like Bruce Alexander, who did these incredible experiments. The audio of a lot of these interviews is there, and yeah, Johan, thank you so much for for coming on today, for sharing all your research, sharing the stories which you've heard on your travels, and. It's yeah. I was I've I came across your TED talk maybe maybe three years ago, and I was kind of like blown away then. And this has just continued, just giving more fuel for the fire. So I really appreciate you sharing all this with us today. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Duncan. Really appreciate it. Cheers. <laughs>